chapter 1 of Genesis, please. Um, we're going to look at just a few verses from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we've, we've made our way through this chapter before, but I want to focus in, in particular today on the idea of being made in God's image. So Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 24. So this is the account of the sixth day of creation. Of course, the whole account begins at chapter 1 with this great statement that is the foundation for everything else that comes in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formed without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering upon the face of the water. So that's the backdrop. Everything that exists is made by God. So down to verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth and God said behold I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Uh, I've got an outline published in the bulletin if you find that helpful to follow along or even jot down the odd note or two but I've, uh, I've called today's talk What is Man? Uh, I've said it before, it's worth repeating that it's often been remarked that if you want to understand life you need to get your head around four big questions, at least four. Uh, who am I? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? Now, I've met plenty of people who give no thought to any of those questions, which is why alcohol exists. Because most, there's a lot of people around who don't want to be troubled by the big questions of life, so they just stupefy themselves to those sorts of issues. Of course, there are others who say there's no God, therefore there's no questions and no answers. But we've begun by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was purposeful in his creation of everything, including humans. And so it's fair to ask those questions and it's fair to expect that there'll be an answer. Now, William Shakespeare, uh, the great English playwright, he was a man who years before psychiatry was invented was coming to grips with what it means to be human. 
And if you've read any of his plays or poems, you'll realise that he had extraordinary insights into the depths of what you might call the human condition. So one of his most famous plays was the play Hamlet, concerning Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark. Now Hamlet, this young prince, troubled by the meaning of life, is visited by two fellow university students who find him depressed. And he tells them that the world for him has become uh, totally without interest. He's lost interest in people. And this is what he says. He says, what a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving how express and how admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Now quintessence means perfect example. And so he says, humans man are the paragon of animals the very top shelf of living creation and he says we're the quintessence of dust the perfect example of dust now of course the bible does tell us that humans were created from dust that's what we're going to see in genesis chapter 2 but dust and breath dust and the breath of god we're not just dust we're dust plus now forgetting or ignoring that God is the creator of everything leads to serious problems. It led to the depression that Shakespeare describes so vividly in, in, in Hamlet. Now I bought a book some years ago called The New York Times Guide to Essential Knowledge. I thought this is going to come in handy one day. It's about that thick and it purports to have information about all the really, really useful stuff that people like me and you too, if you bought it, need to know. Well, there's an article in it. None of the articles are very long. They attempt to condense into short space the really important stuff. So Nicholas Wade, one of their senior journalists at the New York Times, wrote an article called How Did Life Begin? And so this is what he says. The first sentence, How Did Life Begin? The origin of life is, bio- the, the origin of life is biology's most daunting problem. There you go. And this is how he finishes it. Researchers are a long way from reconstructing any plausible path to the origins of life but they have not given up and they always conclude no matter how fragmentary their evidence that life is possible so give yourself a pat on the back and congratulate yourself because you are possible right there was an article on how the universe began or how anything began and essentially the answer is we don't know how did life begin this man here is saying effectively We don't know, but if scientists work hard enough and long enough, perhaps one day we'll find out. At no point in these articles is there any suggestion that it's possible that God might have done it. Because you see, the way science is done now, it seems to me, for an awful lot of scientists, just excludes the possibility of God. So we have to start from another point. The point that I would make is that by the time you rule God out of the equation, you have to be prepared to live with the consequences. And so we're going to see today, uh, some of the reading I've done this week shows us that there are some pretty serious consequences to that. Hebrews 11 verse 3 tells us that it's by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God. We have to acknowledge there are some things that we can't explain fully. But whatever conclusion you come to about the origins of everything, the origins of the universe, the origins of, origins of matter, the origins of humans, 
Whatever conclusions you come to, you come to by faith. Now, faith doesn't mean guesswork and it doesn't mean wishful thinking. Biblical faith means becoming certain of something on the basis of trust in the evidence that God's provided. So biblical faith is not wishful thinking, it's trust. And so we trust that God, when he's spoken through his word, has revealed truly the things that we need to know. Now, the Bible, Genesis, was written in a world that had many other explanations of how things came to be. And so there were Egyptian creation stories. There were Babylonian creation stories. They're not all exactly similar, but they do have some points of view in common. But the uh, the Babylonian uh, creation story said that humans weren't created as the pinnacle of God's created activity. They were created last because they were an afterthought. So the gods who created humanity, according to the Babylonian way of doing things, they said humans were the product of the blood of a defeated monster who the gods had to get rid of because that monster was causing chaos. And so the blood of the monster mingled with the dust of the earth produced humans. Humans weren't created because God loved them. They were created to be the gods slaves to save the gods from having to do the menial work of gathering food and other things that kept them alive so humans according to the babylonian understanding were created to be slaves what that leads to is a very low view of humanity now the culture that we're a part of likes to pretend that we have a high view of humans and so we talk about human rights And we talk about human rights as though everybody everywhere in all places at all times gets it. But they don't. And so human rights is not something that would have been a trouble to the people of ancient Babylon or the people of ancient Greece or the people of ancient Rome. They would have been quite comfortable in believing, well, there's some people who are at the top and there's some people at the bottom and those who are at the top deserve it and those who are at the bottom deserve it. And that's just life. Human rights are a product of a biblical view of the world but there would have been no human rights in ancient Babylon where humans were regarded as an afterthought almost an accident but they were created for the purpose of serving the gods now this low view of humanity has been given many expressions in our own time so Stephen Hawking a very famous one of the most famous scientists of the last 50 or so years he was a Cambridge physicist Um, He wrote a book called The Brief History of Time. He was a bit of a television celebrity. Uh, He's famous for having had motor neurone disease and he was confined to a wheelchair and had to communicate through uh, computers, but a brilliant man he was. But in a 1995 television interview, he said this, the human race is just chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a a billion galaxies. How does that make you feel? If there's no God, he's right. But if there's a God, that changes everything. If there's a God who purposely created people, that's the source of dignity. But Stephen Hawking has eliminated the idea of God from his thinking, and so he accepts, accepts the conclusion... We're tiny little mites in a massive universe that dwarfs us for scale. And so he says, we're chemical scum. Is it any wonder people treat each other the way they do? 
One piece of scum to another. Strong scum overcomes weak scum. That's life. Paul Watson is a conservationist and an animal rights activist. And he said some years ago, we are killing our host, the planet Earth. He says human beings are the AIDS of the Earth. We're just a virus. He said we need to radically and intelligently reduce human populations to fewer than one billion. According to his logic, that's over seven billion who need to go. How does that work? He says earthworms are far more valuable than people. We're just a bunch of conceited apes. Ideas have consequences. Ideas always work themselves out in practical conclusions. Now this is in stark contrast to what Psalm 8 says. David, the shepherd, who was able to see many more stars than we can because he didn't have light pollution to obscure them, he looks up at the vastness of the universe and says, when I consider the universe that you've made, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of in the son of man that you should care for him? He looks at the vastness of the universe, but he knows the personal God. And so his conclusion is quite different. I feel tiny. Why would you even care about me? And yet you do. And there's an ocean of difference between that and the view of Stephen Hawking that says we're just chemical scum. And the consequences of believing either of those two things are going to work out better or worse. But the world that we're in now which just seems to be falling apart at the seams, is the product of this atheistic idea that there is no God, that we're just accidents, perhaps just chemicals come. Well, back to the Bible. Day six is distinctive from all of the other days. It's the longest account. It, 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 it shows there's a progress of what's happening. Um, day six is the day on which land animals and vegetation for their food were created by God. Day six is different from the other accounts because there are four speeches of God in this particular day. And there's two approval sayings where God says everything is good, but one of those is distinct because he says actually it's very good. Now day six is not the climax of the created order in the seven days that we have them described in. Day seven seems to be the climax, but day six is the day on which we're given the most detail. And so we have there God saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness in verse 26. Now, what does this, what does it mean? Let us make man in our image. There's been lots of ink spilt over a solution to that problem because we're told that there's one God. So who's God speaking to? Let's, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, ancient Jewish interpretation of this said this is God speaking to the heavenly council. So we read at various places in the Old Testament that there is this heavenly council. So in Job chapter 38, uh, Job, uh, God asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy sons of God is another way of saying angels that's not the only reference there are others as well where there appears to be this heavenly council so was God speaking to the angels we don't know we're not told of course Christian interpretation has seen in that verse an indication that God has always existed as more than just a singularity 
but that God has always from eternity been Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But that's more than the original readers of this text would ever have been able to understand because the Trinity only becomes clear in the New Testament when we have to work out how to relate Jesus and the Holy Spirit to God the Father. Um, But nonetheless, New Testament uh, teaching tells us that Jesus was present with God as the creation took place in John chapter 1. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. And so it's not wrong to see in that an indication of the Trinity, but you don't want to press it too far because that would not have occurred to the original audience of Genesis. But verse 26 tells us that humans, having been created in God's image, had to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and everything else. Dominion is royal language, right? So this tells us something about who we are. We're made in God's image, what for? To reign. Dominion means to have rule or authority. It's royal language. Humans are not an afterthought. They're not chemical scum. There's a royalty attached to humans. Now, what does it mean to be created in God's image? Because, again, that's been the subject of an awful lot of writing and thinking and lectures and uh, and, and very long books. Verse 27, beautifully constructed poetry. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, it's very difficult to define exactly what is meant by the image, but one thing's for sure, there's a very clear distinction being made here between humans and God's animal creation. We are not animals. Don't ever let anybody tell you you are an animal. You are distinct from the animal kingdom. Now, usually... In the Old Testament, when that word image is used, it refers to an idol. A construction of humans to represent a god or a king. So that's what it usually means. It's the same word. Uh, So when King Nebuchadnezzar demanded that a golden image be made, it's the same word as as is used here in Genesis chapter 1, when God created man in his own image. Now think about this. Back in those days, before television, before radio, before mass communication... Kings reigned over very, very large dominions, didn't they? How can you tell from your capital city people who live far, far away that they are actually in your domain? One way was to set up a statue of yourself. So if you were the king or the emperor and you wanted to demonstrate to everybody in the world that you had conquered that this was your world, you would set up an image of yourself to do that. Now, not too many years ago, an image of a king called Hadad Issi was found in Syria. And it had, on the base of the statue of this man, the image and the likeness of Hadad Issi. And so statues like that were spread all around the empire to say, you are in my territory. The idea of image, this word, when it was used in the ancient world, was only ever uh, applied to statues of kings or to gods. It's interesting that the ancient world created gods in the image of humans. In the Bible, we're told that humans are created in the image of God. What's meant, it seems to me, what's meant by being created in the image of God means that there's an aspect of humanity 
that shares something of God's character. Not perfectly, not fully, but we share an aspect of God's character for the purpose of being able to communicate with him. We can be in relationship with the living God, the creator of everything. But there's more to it even than that. Because to be created in the image of God, we need to remember statues placed around the dominion of a king. We are God's representatives. God's in heaven, we're on earth. We're his images, which means that we are representatives of the true ruler of the world, given dominion to share somewhat in the rule of his world. Does that make sense? Just the odd knot or two would help at this point. It's pretty big stuff. But to be made in the image of God confers dignity on you. And quickly look around because it it confers dignity on everybody else. And this is the basis of human equality and this is the basis of human dignity, which is why Christians should care about old and young sick and well, disabled and fully able because no matter what, every human is created in the image of God created to exercise dominion and dominion means to rule that doesn't mean to take advantage or to exploit but it does mean that humans are given a privileged role in uh, in governing the world under God's good hand now William Doverell is a um, an Australian commentator a great old testament scholar he says this the human being is a sign of god's existence to creation from the very beginning to the end of history the task of every human being is to make god present to all humanity and thus all are equal every human being is appointed to god for every other human being to be made in god's image means that we are meant to be God's representatives. It should change the way we think about everyone else, including the people who cut us off in traffic. They're made in God's image too, including the people that really annoy us and irritate us and who seem to be upending our world. People like Stephen Hawking and Paul Watson make me a bit cross. But they're made in God's image. They're not my enemy and they're not your enemy. So think about all the political people that you will in, you won't vote for, the people that you can think of that are harming Australia. They're not your enemy. They're made in God's image. We need to pray for them, perhaps even pity them, but they're not our enemy because they're made in God's image. Now notice they're male and female. He created them. There is no hint of inferiority. Male and female, there's two choices in humanity, that's all you get. Male and female, both equally created in God's image. This is a foundation document. Many of these ideas are explained and expanded much further elsewhere in the Bible, as we'll see. But right at the outset, we're told male and female, equal in this, created in God's image. Not the same, but equal. And so in verse 28, we get what you might call a very early marriage mandate. God blessed them blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion again that idea of dominion so it's it's God's intention that that people marry and have children now obviously there's some for whom that's not possible 
But in the ordinary way of events, the normal course of things is that men and women will marry and, and reproduce and have children. That's entirely as God intended it, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now that word subdue uh, is another, another way of saying we need to rule the earth and there's a suggestion in there that creation will have to be subdued uh, with hard work. It won't be an easy thing to do. It needs to be brought into submission. But there's no suggestion there that, uh, that humans are to rape, pillage and plunder the earth. It's God's earth. We're ruling it as his representatives. But God does say that we need to make it manageable. Um, but I want to think a bit more about having children because that's another idea which is actually under assault in our world. Have you noticed that? There was an article in the Australian newspaper a couple of years ago, 2021, which was entitled, What is the World Coming To? And it was describing the phenomenon of men under the age of 34 who are voluntarily being sterilised. Now, when I first saw the heading, I thought that'll just be so they can go around and sow their wild oats and not have any consequences. It wasn't that at all. The doctor they spoke to, Sydney's leading vasectomy specialist, said that he was surprised at how many young men who were not married were coming in volunteering to be sterilised and the frequent comment was, I just don't want to bring children into a world like this. It's anti-creational. It's a view of life which is in opposition to the expressed intention of our creator. But it's a view which has taken hold right across the developed world. And so Australia has a falling fertility rate. If it wasn't for migration, the Australian population would be going backwards. Now, according to the United Nations Population Fund, the most recent figures I could find, uh, it takes 2.1 children per couple to reproduce the world's population. Anything less than 2.1, the population will be going downhill. Now, at the moment... The average birth per woman is 2.3. So in other words, the world is reproducing itself. The number one nation uh, with an average of 6.7 babies per woman is Niger. The top 14 are all in Africa. 28 of the top 30 are all in Africa. The African average is 4.5. So Africa's growing population-wise, but countries like ours are not. The top Western nation is Israel. 2.9 2.9 coming in at 142 is america with 1.7 way below reproduction rate and australia at 1.6 way down the list countries like ours not to put it too kind we have a death wish we're just not reproducing why is that we've turned our back on the idea of god mandating be fruitful and multiply the average for most developed countries across the world is 1.5, way below uh, the replacement rate. Now, it gets worse. In getting ready for this sermon this week, I was casting around looking for this and that, and I discovered there's a movement that's become known as antenatalism. Now, A-N-T-E, natal, antenatal, that means before birth, but A-N-T-I means against birth. And so a South African professor of philosophy by the name of David Benatar in 2006 published a book called Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. 
Now, he has accepted his atheistic philosophy and he's pushing it to the very reaches of what you might call logic. It's a nasty logic, it's a cold anti-creational logic, but it makes sense when you hear how he explains it. He says, conscious beings are harmed when they're brought into existence and therefore it is wrong to procreate, to have children. Now, this is the logic that he comes to. Pleasure is good. Would we agree with that? Pain is bad. Would we agree with that? We all try to avoid pain. We all try to cultivate pleasure. He says, well, the balance of probabilities is when you bring a child into the world, they will experience more pain than pleasure. Therefore, you are inflicting more pain than pleasure on them. Therefore, you're doing something evil. And so he says, we should not produce children. It's funny, but he dedicated the book to his parents. It's really hard. Look, it's hard to preach this. I don't want to. I trust that if he was here, he wouldn't think we're mocking him, or or being because he's made in God's image. We've got, we've got to be careful how we deal with opposing views in a way that doesn't make it sound like we're treating. It. He's not a fool. I think he's misguided, but he's not a fool. But the trouble with views which are in opposition to the revealed will of god is eventually they'll prove themselves to be destructive and that's destructive he says that um, procreation leads to both bad and good experiences but on the balance of things there'll be more pain than pleasure he says not bringing a baby into the world means yeah all right you're denying them pleasure but you're denying them more pain so therefore that's the more logical thing to do He says that creating a child imposes on the parents the burden of this, that after 10 generations, if a a mum and dad have three kids, 10 generations down the track, there'll be 88,572 people all suffering. He says that's an awful lot to bear with. This is deeply anti-creational and it's a product of a world that's turned its back on God. But God said, in verse 31 of our passage, that everything that he had made was very good. Participating in the process of bringing life into the world is a part of God's good intention, but it has positive outcomes. And so as we, think, as we finish, what is man? It's the question that um, David asked. It's a question that William Shakespeare asked. Are we just pond scum? Are we just an accident? Are we an animal? Are we the aids of the earth? Well, the Bible tells us that we were a special creation. We were intended. God meant to create people. As the days go, day six is the most significant at this point. And so humans are a high point on the creation schedule. Now, why does this matter? Well, why are we here? What's the point of being human? Is there meaning? And there is. We're the intentional creation of God. He's created us for a purpose. Now, the great St. Augustine, one of the great thinkers of Christian history, when he became a Christian, he wrote a book called Confessions, and he said this extraordinary thing, uh, a wonderful sentence. He says, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Why are you here? You're here because God wanted you to be. What are you here for? To know him. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
What we've seen in these quotes that I've read out is the evidence of a restless world because they've turned their back on the one who can give them meaning. But downstream from philosophers and scientists who come up with all of those ideas is all of the human damage that's caused by people who don't really know how to think those things through but who behave in a way which is somewhat consistent with it. Now, you've probably heard of the American Declaration of Independence. When America decided to separate itself from the apron strings of Mother England, uh, the founding fathers of America came up with, uh, with documents on which their nation would be based. And the, the, most, uh, the earliest one of those, or one of, the, one of the earliest, was the, uh, the American Declaration of Independence. Very famously, the preamble to that document begins with these words, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident. They're not self-evident because most cultures in most places around the world throughout all of history have not seen that humans are equal. Now, it's interesting, uh, Thomas Jefferson was the original drafter of those words and his original version read this way, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And they were changed because he submitted it to a committee and they changed sacred and undeniable to be self-evident. But my question for them would be, where in nature do you see the evidence that people are created equal? Now think about it. I really wanted to play football for Melbourne and I wanted to play cricket for Australia. But somewhere along the way, around about grade three, I worked out I just wasn't good enough. Which is why I paid money to go and watch the football. Because you see, there are people who are bigger, stronger, smarter, faster, better than me. Does that mean I'm not their equal? Well, it could if I lived by the law of the jungle. But think about this, you're not the richest person in the world. You're not the, well, you might be, but I know I'm not the smartest person in the world, right? Uh, I'm not the best looking. I'm not the strongest. There's so many things that I'm not, and nor are you. But that's not where we look for equality. These things are not self-evident. These things we know because God has revealed them. And when people turn their backs on those things, humans pay the price. And there are consequences downstream of them. The Bible in other, the, the, elsewhere, Proverbs 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. In God's sight, you're equal. Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, says God. Now, why would that be? Because both parties to that transaction are made in God's image. If there's no God, Hawking could be right. We might just be pond scum. Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Why? Because we're made in God's image, both of us. Well, who am I? A special creation of God. What am I here for? To rule under God's good hand in relationship with God and in accord with his principles. Do I matter? Yes, I matter very much and so do you. But where are we headed? The Bible tells us we're going to be like Jesus. You see, he's the true image bearer of God. So we read in, uh, 
in Colossians verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The image of God in each of us has been marred by the fall. We're going to read about that in a few weeks. We're not what we should be. We are imperfect. We are flawed in many ways. We do cause a lot of trouble in the world, us humans. But in Christ, this is not as good as it gets. We will be made different. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the the man of heaven. C.S. Lewis sums that up this way. He says, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is not all there is. We have a future and a glorious destiny. And that destiny was caught up in that reading I read from 2 Timothy before. If we endure, we will reign with him. The reign that God bequeathed to us in creation, the rule over creation will be re-established and restored when Jesus returns. And creation takes on the glory that it was created in. But you only know these things because we've got a book where God tells us. So we're not nothing. We're not an afterthought. We're not an animal. We're not pond scum. We're people of dignity, people of equality, created by one God, being restored through a God who loved us and sent his son for us. And he opens up for us a glorious destiny which is beyond imagination but certainly beyond the reach of anyone who remains outside of Christ. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, these are deep and wonderful things, and so we ask that you would help us to to roll them around in our minds, to meditate on them uh, with the help of your Holy Spirit, and come to the conclusions that your word wants us to come to. We thank you for revealing yourself to us uh, through your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your creation. But most of all, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through the Lord Jesus, the the true image bearer, the true human. Uh, We thank you that one day uh, when he returns, he will make everything new and and restore us too, restore perfectly in us the image of God that uh, was there in the beginning. So, Father, please help us uh, at a practical level to put these things into practice. May we as a church treat each other, each as, as image bearers of God, But may we treat each person we meet this week or even in our thoughts about others, may we regard them in the same way. May we live in a way that shows that we are your representatives and by doing so hold out a vision of life which uh, wins other people uh, into the family of the Lord Jesus. So we thank you for all these things and we pray that you would uh, help us to live in the light of them. In Jesus' name, amen.